That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. And welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Morning, Ben. How was your weekend? Uh, very good, thank you. I was with uh, university friends for our annual Christmas meal. So my uh, my first Christmas meal of the week and uh, not my last. How about you? Uh, uh, very good. Very Again, Christmas parties have started already, haven't they? We've just reached Advent. Door number two. Today is, actually today is the 4th of December, but door number four, well and truly open on the advent calendar. But of course, the whole of uh, our workplaces and our friends and our clubs and every sports teams, they're all meeting up for uh, Christmas parties already. I, I, I hesitate to correct them on the fact that we're not technically in the Christmas season. That doesn't start till the 25th of December, but I'm not sure I'm going to win that battle. No, I I, th- I fear that that's probably lost for you, Tom. That's a ship that sailed. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so. We want to talk about uh, Christmas presents and uh, particularly about uh, books mm. that we might be buying as Christmas gifts for people. So, uh, so Tom you, has written this excellent list uh, of well, a dozen or so different uh, different books about free speech and culture war and what on earth's going on and so on. Um, and so we thought we'd just have a bit of a chat about that. We should probably also say welcome to new listeners, because our, our numbers have been have been ticking up quite nicely, which is is very good to see. Yeah. So uh, welcome to new and returning listeners to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much yeah. for being here. So Tom, do you want to dive into it with your, uh, your, your book choices, your suggestions? Yeah, I mean, the idea, I think, is that with Christmas coming, it's a good opportunity to... Uh, to, to, to get some of these on on people's um, present list because this is this is the moment I think when uh, people are rushing around on Amazon probably um, looking for their their Christmas selection and one thing that struck me as I put this list together Ben is that uh, we've actually talked to a few authors and uh, have podcast episodes where we discussed some of these books so um, First on my list is Sharon Davies' book. She wrote a book called Unfair Play, The Battle for Women's Sport. Um, And she wrote that with Craig Lord. And uh, many, many of our listeners will be aware of of, of Sharon and the battle that she's fighting for fair play in girls' sport and women's sport. And some of the tragic things that she spoke to us about in that podcast episode, such as on um, school sports days, uh, the little toddlers, the the girls, mm, they're not yeah. participating anymore. They don't have the girls' races and the boys' races. They're all being lumped together. And of course, even at a young age, the boys are bigger, they're stronger, and the, the parents say, "I'm not. I don't want my little girl to be squashed, of course, and be put off sport for forever." So she's written this fantastic book that addresses not just that, but also the broader issue of um, uh, transgender women particularly coming in into uh, elite sport as well. Sorry, Ben, you were going to say? Well, oh, no, I was just going to say, I was very sorry to miss that recording. I can't remember why, but I was, it was over summer and I was away, I think, um, with no I think internet. You were having something, I think you might have had a, um, 
what's what's the name of that thing a uh, holiday holiday was it was a, a holiday, holiday. <laughs> yes we, we're kept quite busy at the free speech union it's fair to say with our with our work so but yes that i was on yeah. holiday but we're not complaining because we love it we do we do uh, and it's very important but i was sorry to miss that um so do go back and listen to that that was back in august i think wasn't it um yeah that was in really august, interesting and uh, the, the the list of episodes is available but it was with sharon and uh, we also had an event she came along to that and that she was signing copies of the book i've got it in front of me in fact i've got a, a whole pile of books in front of me ben the, the desk in front of me is creaking so many things so many books that needed to be written have been written this year but that's a great first book unfair play the battle for women's sports. So if you haven't thought about giving that to someone in the family or a friend, uh, then now's another opportunity to have another thing. What about you, Ben? What's your well, first Tom, book? Tom, Tom is brandishing the book vigorously, uh, which I know listeners <laughs> cannot see, but just to emphasize his enthusiasm for the book. Written by a swimmer as well. So even Written more, even more yeah. enthusiastically. Well, we had, speaking of, uh, of authors we have spoken to on the podcast, we interviewed the American author, Matt Johnson, about his book, didn't we? Uh, How Hitchens mm. Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment. And that, again, was a really interesting chat. Um, again, go back and listen to that. There's nothing about, about that. You know, we recorded that probably five or six months ago. It's not, it, it's, the content isn't isn't dated because it the, the depth of, of what uh, Matt Johnson is talking about. Um, and so he had this really interesting argument, I thought, we thought, um, about mm. the, should we say, dormant strain within the left um, that Christopher Hitchens represented. And then, of course, we talked, I think, as well, about the, uh, the extent to which he was perceived to uh, have left the left behind um, become a neoconservative of course there's some people say that neoconservatives are the most radical of revolutionaries um and uh and that hitchens was just one of them so there's all sorts of really interesting interesting discussions about about where actually hitchens sits uh whether his to, to what extent his views evolve i think clearly they they do over the the 80s the 90s and the 2000s um but many people whether they tend to agree with him or tend not to uh, particularly on questions around religion, uh, I think lament the fact that he is not here uh, giving us the benefits of his views on the cultural moment in which we're uh, we're now in. Um, so I would recommend that. And Tom, can I can I have another go? Is that all right? Of course, of course, we're doing we're doing we're gonna, we're going to do fifteen love. 15 or yeah. 30, 15. <laughs> okay. But you know what tennis is like every now and then you get to some crazy deuce advantage, you advantage that. Yeah. So throw whatever okay. you want to throw right. in, Ben. Well, then the next one's really closely related. Um, and uh, it, I should be honest, it's not a book I have read, but I'm listening to the podcast based on the book. And I think I will pick up a copy of it as well. And this is The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God by uh, Justin Briley, who is uh, has launched a podcast, I think he's four or five episodes into it now, which is fantastic on the uh, rise, the fall, the decline of, of the new atheist movement um, and what has replaced it. And so he makes this argument, I think very persuasively, that new atheism basically knocked everything down. It flattened the last... Uh, vestiges the last remnants of christianity in the public square um it knocked down the central story that the west is organized around without very much thought for what replaced it and so some authors 
Sam Harris try and construct a sort of scientific moral system. Um, you, you have humanism and so on. Uh, but beyond all of that, you also have a presumption that without religion, people will still behave in a sort of decent, fundamentally decent way to each other and that human values are uh, something that arise naturally uh, or indeed um, something which are, are suppressed by by religion and organized religion mm. in particular. But he, he does make this very, this very powerful argument that by knocking all of these things down, new atheism opened the door accidentally to what we now call woke um, and that producing this this empty throne as it were meant that somebody was going to sit in it some ideology had to replace christianity uh, and that what we're dealing with now is very much the, uh, the the aftershock of the new atheist movement so really interesting stuff and also he predicted that um ayan hirsi ali was was going was, was going towards christianity uh, was going to convert to christianity before it happened it's interesting yeah that's interesting we talked about that conversion in a previous episode and uh, we had quite a, a heated debate really ben for you and me as to you were you weren't necessarily convinced um that it was a sort of a traditional classic conversion you thought it was it was a new kind of conversion almost and i was saying to me it actually sounded like quite a classic conversion so uh, we'll yeah. see how i am um, continues to write about and and talk about her own religious beliefs and experiences, but I think uh, that's a really interesting development. The surprising rebirth of the belief in God—that's Justin Brearley. Um, yeah. Can I jump in? Go, go for it. So, so I'm going to slightly change tack. Uh, and actually, uh, there are two books that I didn't put on the list that's right in front of us, uh, Ben, uh, because they're both about this whole area of disinformation and misinformation, something that is really at the heart of the culture wars. Uh, we know this because people get um, uh, suppressed on Twitter, or they get you know, their views are put in the in, in so that others can't hear them, or we, we get fact checkers and such like, and uh, we worry that they're biased in and of themselves. Um, so the first, so the first book is "Free Your Mind: The New World of Manipulation and How to Resist It." by Laura Dodsworth and Patrick Fagan. I started with the audio book. I may go to the uh, physical book, I think. But she says, from the moment you get up, you have, whether it's your partner, whether it's um, the radio that you switch on, you are being manipulated, you are being advertised to. And then within that, working out what is the truth, what is misinformation? What is disinformation? So I'm really excited about um, learning that. And, and many people uh, in the reviews that I was reading were saying, my goodness me, I'm terrified now. Um, but the point is, she first of all, I think in the book, wants to terrify you and say, look, this is what's really happening. But then equip you, equip you for noticing it, for being alert to it, and being aware of the manipulation that is all around us. And as people in the free speech world, that is really, really important. And I'll throw my second book in, which is also related to sort of misinformation and disinformation, but totally different. It's called, and I bought this over the weekend again, and I've started started dipping into it. It's called The Coming Wave by Mustafa Suleiman. And it's about AI. And what this book is saying is that the, we are on the cusp of a new revolu revolution. It's got uh, great, um, rave reviews from two people. This is one of the reasons I picked it up. Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, yeah. and also Alain de Botton, who's a very well-known modern philosopher. Uh, both highly credible uh, 
commentators on various things that are going on in our times. So when I saw them on the front saying this is a great book, I fell for what uh, Laura Dodsworth in the previous book would have said is advertising and manipulation. And I'm, I'm now um, got this book. However, <laughs> anything about AI, I think at the moment is going to be really interesting. Is it over egged? Is it something that uh, we all need to get to get better at chat gpt has been something that came in this this last 12 months um is it is it does it work i mean the, the i've used it and i think my goodness me it gets it gets certain things very very wrong it can't add up is what i've found but you know things like wikipedia and the information flows around the internet uh they're all going to be ai generated so um sorry not wikipedia i'm not saying that's going to be ai generated i'm saying that um as a source material, it's going to be picked up by AI and it's going to influence it and misinformation and disinformation uh, where that's in that is going to, is going to be either amplified or it's not going to have human, human curators in the same way that it has. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that and, and finding a little bit out about that. But what about, what about you? What's next on your list, uh, Ben? On, on the subject of, uh, of AI, I, I do think probably that, that there will be a very strong argument that 2023 will mark the end of one period of information that lasted for about 5,000 years and the start of a new one. And that that we have now gone through this boundary and some people are very alert to it, some people are not, um, where the deluge of AI-created material, you know, that's a very small part of AI, but just looking at AI-created material mm. that's now available online, um, the fact that it's now utterly impossible to tell whether something was painted by a computer or a person or written by a computer or a person. We're already through that point completely. Um, And in terms of misinformation and disinformation, the deluge of AI content that is going to come down the barrel. And I've heard quite a few, I don't know if you've seen this, Tom, but quite a few clips of politicians speaking um, there was one uh, of Keir Starmer, I think, a few weeks ago. Um, I can't remember what he was doing in the video, berating a staff member or something something like that. And it was completely AI generated and it sounded entirely believable <laughs> and was circulating on social media. And there have been quite a few things like that um, where people have yeah, circulated yeah. it thinking it was real. Um, and so I do not know how democracy can, any democracy can deal with a situation where you literally do not know whether you can trust and believe something you can see with your own eyes or hear for yourself. Yeah. How on earth do we cope with that? I've got no idea. So I'm hoping one of these books is uh, is fumbling its way to an answer. Well, I certainly um, think there's a really good trick at the beginning. So this book, The Coming Wave by Mustafa Suleiman, there's a trick at the beginning, which I fell into. Uh, so um, it, it, it gets off to a good start. I won't tell people what that trick is, uh, but uh, just so that you, you know, I'm, I'm doing his work for him. I'm marketing the book. Um, but I have a theory that, and I, the trouble is I don't think my theory is right, Ben. It's yeah. that theory of uh, false currency or um, uh, counterfeit currency, that you teach people to spot counterfeit currency by dealing with and being really familiar with real cash. And if you every day you're dealing with real cash, you can spot the fake a mile off. And the trouble with AI is we are dealing with real people every day um so and yet i think we're still going to get tricked by it so i i I don't think that this theory of mine which is deal with the reality and you'll spot the fake 
quite works. But there may no. be some legs to it. I need to and do some more thinking on that. The, the other problem with that is that we will reach a point, if we haven't already, maybe we have, I don't know, or maybe we're about to, where the amount of AI-generated material actually outnumbers human-generated material. I mean, how, yeah. how many years of chat GPT and mid-journey AI does it take until there is more computer-generated art and literature and writing than there is human from the entire course of human history up to this point? I don't know. Are we 5% of the uh, we, way we're there? We're getting there. Right? Yeah. I've no we idea. may well be there. We then. may well be there. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> There's so much material online. As, as the old joke goes, the boss who doesn't know what they're doing says, could you print out the internet and so give me a hard copy <laughs> so I don't have to log on. Yeah, with that, that, that was the original joke, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's still funny. <laughs> I, am, I, I, yeah. I, I reread um, The Magician's Nephew, the, the first, well, chronologically, the first Narnia book. I think it was the last written. Um, I, I reread it on a, on a train journey last week. Um, and there's a bit where Jardis, who will become the White Witch, um, is, uh, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with this. I mean, everyone knows the guy in the Witch in the Wardrobe, but um, mm. spoiler alert, I mean, it did come out half a century ago. Um, but the, the White, <laughs> or longer, in fact, uh, much more than half a century ago, um, the White Witch is in the ruins of Charn, the city which she is the empress of, which she um, has has destroyed killed every living thing by using the deplorable word and this very there's a very chilling passage towards the end of the book where it's predicted that somebody will discover and use the deplorable word and destroy all life on our planet one day too and i read that and i just thought there was there was just something incredibly chilling about it where humanity is on well i was about to say on the cusp of that's not right humanity has developed this immense power um and nobody really seems to know what to do with it whether to develop it whether not to um no one has a compelling answer to these questions i think isn't it a joy though ben when that uh, those ideas those powerful ideas are written well you know we aren't today talking about the canon you know the aldous huxley the george orwells the c.s lewis and then uh, in other in other languages the dostoevsky the tolstoys um but when these wonderful eternal ideas are written in the crisp and uh, beautiful way that c.s lewis did in that context, in a children's book, and I think J.K. Yeah. Rowling does this as well. You know, she she's a, a superb writer, and uh, catches you in that first book from page one. Uh, wonderful, long-lasting stories written perfectly and crisply, and crafted. And uh, yeah, that the magician's nephew, and then the last, you know, the last battle. That whole series yeah. of Narnia books. There, I mean, there's a Christmas, there's a couple of Christmases worth of uh, of getting your children reading, uh, just in that series. I think. Well, maybe I should nominate that. Um, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> somewhat somewhat tenuously connected to the subject of free speech, uh, but uh, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> I'd, I've not reread it since I was, I suppose, ten or eleven. Um, so it was, it was the yeah, first time I just picked it up books. on a whim, and I thought, yeah, I'll, um, I'll reread it. And if um, you know about, you know, the, if you if you know about the Christian doctrines, and even coming from a secular perspective, you realise, and you, as you learn about your own culture you realize what C.S. Lewis is drawing on and how he's he's putting it together and sticking it sticking it into this uh, amazing story. Well, this, you know. to go back to um, th this thing about new atheism knocking down the last you know, rubble of, of Christianity in the public square, um, I do think that's probably the, the, the trouble that the Narnia books will have in terms of their 
uh, longevity compared to, for instance, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, because they're so explicitly Christian or based on an understanding and sympathy with Christian ideas. Um, mm. So I, I wonder if they'll still be read in 50 years. I very much hope so. Anyway, right, I'm rambling. This isn't, this isn't what we're supposed to be talking about. Um, <laughs> should I? Yeah, so next, next on, on the list uh, was the book by Professor Stephen Greer, Falsely Accused of Islamophobia, My Struggle Against Academic Cancellation. Um, and we heard Professor Greer, uh, Tom is again brandishing the book, which of course is uh, is no help uh, in this format because none of you can see it. <laughs> he is doing it. Uh, we, we heard Stephen speak, didn't we? Um, we about did. He was yeah. speaking with uh, Taj Hage of the Oxford Institute for British Islam and they had a, a public conversation about what happened to Stephen, the uh, campaign uh, against him at Bristol University and the universities. Uh, somewhat lacking uh, response to it, shall we put it that way? Um, mm. And uh, this follows very much the same contours of Batley Grammar School um, and the Wakefield Quran Gate saga. It's all about the same, uh, the, the same incredible nervousness uh, of anything to do with. Uh, Islamophobia, broadly defined. And um, Tom, you messaged me yesterday, actually. You'd found an old article I'd written. I found an old article. I, I, you actually came up, and I wasn't looking for you, but this um, confounding within Islamophobia of race and religion. Yeah. This, this, and, and you say in the article that I found, you say it's infuriating. And it is infuriating because, yeah. obviously, on the one hand, you have race and racism and hatred of a race, and on the other hand, you have religion and uh, doctrines of a religion and, and everything that comes in, in the package of a religion. And criticizing one or, or even fear, phobia of one is so different to phobia of another. There is no such thing as Christophobia. Um, you, you genuinely, and you say this you know, in the article, um, or maybe you don't, but um, uh, the reason I was looking for you was a podcast I was listening to. You know, there is no such thing as Christophobia because we can critique the doctrines of Christ Christianity. We can critique the doctrines of Judaism. Well, similarly, Islam, Islamophobia needs to be split into two so that we can critique the religion, but quite rightly be quite cautious and 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 uh, as we are with yeah, anti-Semitism, for example. You know, the hate race hatred is a very different animal. That's a very, very different thing in a society and needs to be dealt with in a different way from from hatred or of religious doctrines. You know, those two things need to be made distinct. Islam doesn't distinguish between mosque and state like we distinguish between church and state. And so yeah. this lack of clear thinking, and you lay it out really, really nicely in your article for the National Secular Society, uh, is frustrating. It's also created a kind of template that's been used uh, with the term transphobia, where exactly the same thing is done. You have the conflation between trans people uh, and the claims made by trans people or trans rights activists, um, which in a free society, people have to be uh, at complete liberty to mock, disagree with, dispute. Um, and also, yeah, I've seen some attempts to introduce the term Sinophobia as well, when there's uh, criticism of Chinese influence of universities or British politics or business or whatever. Um, so the term Islamophobia has done a lot of harm uh, on its own, but it, it is also a, a prototype, a template 
that others have used to restrict freedom of speech as well, I would say. Anyway. And Stephen Greer, in his book, uh, Falsely Accused of Islamophobia, My Struggle Against Academic Cancellation, he talks, and he said this in our event, he talks about Islamophobia phobia, which of course is within our cultural institutions, whether it's your employer, whether it's your uh, your club or society or your, your educational institution, the leaders there are f- have, have real Islamophobia phobia. They're terrified that the accusation of Islamophobia is even anywhere in the, in the sort of in the air. And I thought that was a really interesting, um, clever and insightful new term, Islamophobia phobia. Similarly, I suppose transphobia phobia you could talk about. Yeah, know, absolutely. This, this fear of the accusation. Yeah. Uh, okay, over to you then, Tom. What's next on your list? Yeah, I mean, I'm very aware as well, as we go through these books, we're really getting into it, Ben. And I wonder, we're not going to get through this whole list in this one segment. We might need to to spill over into another yeah, segment Yeah, this is supposed to be quick week. fire. I'm, I'm, we, we keep no, no, getting, no, it's uh... not. It's much <laughs> more powerful, I think, when we're able to talk a little bit about uh, the detail of these books so that... Um, yeah, our listeners, our listeners can uh, can get a sense and a feel for how excited we are about a lot of these books, and they are really important books. So then, I, I the next one I was going to mention for a bit of light relief is uh, "Tough Crowd: mm. How I Made and Lost a Career in Comedy" by Graham Linehan. Again, this is a book that came out this year, and uh, Graham was uh, cancelled. He suffered from a cancellation. Uh, not being platform. I think it was up in Edinburgh uh, at the Edinburgh Festival, and then he ended up speaking and doing his um, his comedy on the steps outside. And um, this book, I mean, Graham Linehan, he created Father Ted. I mean, some of yeah. the best comedy on our television sets that we've had um, in the '90s. I absolutely adored it. Getting lost in the largest lingerie department in Dublin is a classic and and so many clips uh, mrs doyle is an icon i have pictures of her up you know i i just feel that father ted was was a cultural moment that uh, we are drawing on still uh, and yet the creator of that the writer of that one of our greatest comedy writers uh, ends up today in the 2020s being cancelled losing his career in comedy so he's written a great book and, and because it's him it's got his it's written yeah, as a comedian, it is light relief as well. So he's not, he, it's a very serious topic, but it's written by a comedian. So it will also make you, as it were, laugh out loud. So that's my light relief book, Ben. It's done very well, hasn't it? Um, as well. I've mm. seen lots of, uh, well, I've seen it all over the place, actually, which has been really nice. Um, I've not yeah. read it, but it, it's, uh, it yeah. seems to have been uh, well reviewed. But it's really important as well because, com- com- you know, comedy is, is, an area we've talked about a lot and the death of comedy or the, 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 is it not dead? Maybe moribund. It feels that modern comedy is so predictable. It's when it's trying to be edgy, it's quite the reverse. It's, it's, you know, things like, um, uh, some of the comedy programs on the BBC that I can't think of at the moment used to be amazing, uh, have kind of become so predictable and so dreary, and it's the same old laughs on the yeah. same old topics. So having a book written by one of those people who have, who's made us laugh and remind us of how important comedy is, it's such a fundamental part of, uh, it should be, of our, our week, of our day, is laughing, laughing out loud. It's so good for us. It's so healthy. 
Um, and yet that's where another part that's been attacked by cancel culture, part of our culture. And uh, we, we, we think it doesn't matter. It matters. Comedy really changes changes things. So, so I think that would be a great book to add to any Christmas list. Can I um, recommend a book that I've not read? Uh, is that bad? Yes. Odd. It's it's a book. No, um, no, no. That's a, that. Not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I suppose I'm sort of recommending it to myself as well because I uh, will pick up a copy um, of Mary Harrington's book, Feminism Against Progress, uh, which came out this year, and um, she's spoken about this um, in promoting. She's spoken to trigonometry and done various uh, podcasts and uh, segments on it. Um, and she just has this really fascinating, completely fresh perspective on some of the stuff that is going on under the surface, below the the sort of day-to-day froth of the culture war and, and cancellations and free speech and so on. So it's, it's not a book about freedom of expression, really, um, as I understand it. But, it, but it, it does, having heard her talk about it, she does explain... Um, I think very, very well. And I'm not going to just try and uh, uh, replicate her explanation because I couldn't possibly do it justice. Some of the trends in society, particularly among young women, and we, we've spoken in the last few weeks about the war between the sexes, um, that I think are feeding into freedom of speech, attitudes to freedom of mm. speech, um, and the estrangement between uh, young men and young women that, that seems to be going on. Um, so I am recommending that to you and to myself because I've heard her speak about it. It sounds fascinating, and uh, I do actually need to go and read the book. Well, I, I'm going to do the same uh, shameful thing, Ben. And yet, it's uh, yeah. W- there are so many good books we can't have read them all, can we? And yet, I think they deserve a hearing, um, without a doubt. Um, I'm going to do exactly the same. This was a book that was recommended by one of our colleagues to join this list. It's um, the title, I have to say, just it's so zoomed in on what the free speech union is all about. So the title of this book is The Cancelling of the American Mind, How Cancel Culture Undermines Trust, Destroys Institutions and Threatens Us All. Brilliant title. I mean, <laughs> if if one of, the thing, one of the thoughts I had was we, as we were drawing up this list, Ben, and I, I mentioned it to you, was uh, is there a free speech book that is crying out to be written? I thought that was an interesting uh, question because there's lots of books. There's lot, and we've talked about them uh, on this segment. There are lots of great books that are going. Is there, is there something that's crying out to be written? Well, something with that title, uh, I think, is has cried out to be written. How the cancel culture undermines trust, destroys institutions, and threatens us all. Again, I don't think that one's going to be an easy read. Um, it's read, written by um, Greg, Greg Luckyanoff, president of Fire. Foundation for Individual Rights in Education in the US, alongside Nikki Schlott. And I don't think I pronounced um, Greg's second name right there. However, uh, he's obviously a big thinker in the US. He's 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 um, heavily involved in FIRE. And um, this book has had rave reviews. Yeah, I think it's just come out. I think it's very hot off the press. Um, but, you know, we talk about how America... Uh, Ideas in America come here, and they, without a doubt, they have. In some ways, now we can read a book that's focused on America, and, and it still brings huge amount of value to understand what's happening here in Britain. So, I have no doubt that that book is going to be extraordinarily relevant to us. So, I'm that's on my Christmas list, Ben. If you if you want to buy me a book for Christmas, <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I, I think to answer your, uh, you, you asked if there's a sort of free speech book that hasn't been written. I think there absolutely is a book in the experiences of ordinary people who are bearing the brunt of cancel culture, actually, the kind of people that, that we speak to and help. Um, so if there are any publishers listening, um, I think that would be very worth, uh, very worth commissioning because it's so much more. This is the, this is the one point I make over and over again, whenever I'm doing any kind of um, you know, media segment or, or giving a talk about our work, is that this cancel culture isn't a story that's just about celebrities. It's largely yeah. not about that. It's it's largely a story about ordinary people in normal workplaces and schools and universities and so on. Um, so I think that's that's neglected. And, and and I'm holding it up again, which is absolutely useless for our listeners. But there is one book that we've already mentioned that t- it gets close to that, isn't it, Ben? Which is Stephen Greer's book. You know, it, yeah. his was a very personal journey. It was a very personal cancellation. It affected. The last year, which in many ways I think he's thankful for, it was late in his career, but his last year as uh, before retirement was pretty much a write-off because of the fallout from this. Even when he was completely exonerated, um, the professor essentially never got back the level of um, responsibility and teaching responsibilities that he had before. So that's a very uh, personal book, personal journey. So. Um, but there are so many others that need to be written, Ben, to your point. We do, and I fear we're running out of time. Um, shall we just very quickly? I think, I think we are. I think we are yeah. running out of time. But as I say, we may spill over. And one thing I think as well, Ben, is that we could spill over. If listeners have books in the week, let us know. Uh, we can talk about them next week. We, we may well not have read them. Uh, I'm a bit of a speed reader but i'm not that good a speed reader um but yeah if there's a book that listeners think they that we should be adding to our stocking list uh then let us know during the week but uh yeah we should we should move on to our next segment which uh, i've forgotten for the moment ben well there's a bit of good news actually just to quickly note the launch of our australian sister organization the free speech union of australia um who uh now join our growing FSU family. Uh, so we have sister organizations in New Zealand and in South Africa as well. So uh, great stuff. Very exciting. Because we do have lots of people who contact us and say, you know, I'm not in the UK, but can you help me with, with this or that uh, situation? Yeah. So it's it's really good to see this, this growth. Um, and obviously, unfortunate, there is a demand for it, but there is a demand for it. I, I may well splice together, if you'll forgive me, uh, Ben, the next two items, uh, which are both about human rights commissions, uh, these sort of national organizations that have crossing their desk uh, a bunch of um, uh, people, uh, issues to do with human rights and how they play out in their respective countries. So the two countries that uh, we, we want to talk about are the UK and Canada. We talked about Canada before and free speech in Canada. But in the UK, our Human Rights Commission, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, is being reviewed now by the supra-organization, the Global Alliance of National Human Rights Institutions, uh, and actually has at risk now its A status. And this is because it's it's had... Um, it's, it's, there's a letter that's been sent into the supranational uh, organization that's called GANRI, Global Alliance of National Human Rights Institutions, uh, a letter from Stonewall and some other organizations saying that uh, the ECHR 
is it is in essence it's um, squashing the rights of transgender people because it wants to go back to the Equality Act 2010 and clarify that the reference to sex is the reference to biological sex. And now that has led to Gannery saying we are going to investigate uh, the UK's ECH e- Equality and Human Rights Commission (EHRC), yeah. and um, so that is what's going on in the UK. Whereas what's going on in Canada is that the Canadian Human Rights Commission, um, and this has just happened recently, has now attacked Christmas. Um, and to me, this is this is this seems to be where this is this is going. These human rights commissions are being used as vehicles to attack. Well, we're going to see more of that, I fear. And so I think it's been very admirable the fight back within the UK EHRC um, to protect the rights of people with gender critical views. And I, by the way, I I kind I do I have to say I do hate that phrase a lot. Um, gender mm. critical. I mean, it, it's it it makes it sound like. Well, I actually I wonder if there's a lot of confusion. I wonder if you asked a hundred people on the street what gender critical meant. I expect they probably would think it means somebody who believes in transgender ideology. They, it, it, it's not a great phrase. And again, the words that get used by um, the ideologues, those who are trying to cancel people, are very effective. They, they really are effective user, users of language. Um, whereas I think on the more, on the more traditional side, uh, we, 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 we're not, we're not so good at coming up with the crisp, punchy <laughs> versions of language. Um, I mean, my thought on this UK ECHR issue is, um, it's the accreditation that's the problem. So the, the 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 thing that the ECH, ECHR is e- going to worry E-H-R-C. about E-H-R-C. E-H-R-C, I apologise. <laughs> it's in my head. As I yeah, I've, got, I, many, I've even written it out. I've written it out. I've I've put it down, and I yeah, I've done that. I still get it wrong. E-H-R-C. Um, the, the problem is that if they lose their A status, so if this investigation uh, that's been triggered by a letter, if they lose it, they are then going to be in the same bucket as Azerbaijan, uh, Mauritania, Nicaragua, Paraguay, and Afghanistan. And of course, that looks terrible. And this is this is where I have this real issue with accreditation schemes. I mean, it, it crops up everywhere. Obviously, Stonewall has an accreditation scheme. We've talked about B Corps. They are an accreditation scheme. Uh, we've talked about carbon literacy training. That's an accreditation scheme. Scheme now in the instance of the ECHR, you know, it, it it politically it's poison to lose your accreditation. That seems to me to be the heart of the issue that we've created these kite marks um, that no one wants to lose. No one's willing to say I'm willing to lose it and to bear the consequences of it because I feel that's kind of where we need to go and say I'm not going to be held hostage by an accreditation. Um, but no one wants to be the first to move. I heard Doug Stokes speak on this last week. He was talking with um, Alka Sagar Cuthbert about decolonization. And he described that dynamic as being like the mafia turning up at a restaurant and saying, lovely place you've got here. Wouldn't it be a pity if something happened to your front windows? Um, <laughs> and and it, it is that kind of mentality, isn't it? That uh, it, it, these things have become kind of protection rackets. Um, and if you're outside the fold, you're in a lot of trouble. That's a brilliant analogy. I love that. It's that it's that threat that uh, the mafia are very good at. That threat 
of, wouldn't it be terrible to lose your A status, yeah. EHRC? Wouldn't it be awful? Imagine the fallout. And the fear is real because you know that the fallout would be pretty difficult to, to, to live through, to, to work through. And it takes, it's going to take courage. All of this is going to take courage. Someone's going to put their head above the parapet. Someone's going to say, we're willing. We're willing now to look bad. Um, but when it comes to the Canadian uh, Human Rights Commission, the reason I wanted to talk about that is that it feels like, and there, as we talked about Canada, we're right on the other side of the uh, the, the discussion, uh, where Canada's gone very woke very quickly. Yeah. Um, they're, they've written a, uh, a well, the commission has said that in essence, um, the Christmas holiday is colonialist and discriminatory. Uh, and it really got me thinking, Ben, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, on the calendar, because um, underline that there's an attack on Christmas, there's an attack on the celebration of Christmas. Uh, we've also seen, in light of all that's happened in recent weeks, we've also seen things like people marching marching on Christmas tree lighting um, in New York. We've seen people attack uh, that. And again, that's part of our calendar. Beginning yeah. of Advent, we switch on our Christmas lights. It's something that we do, something that we mark. We've seen the attack on Remembrance Day, which in the, Uni in the United Kingdom, obviously that's huge, a huge part of our calendar. It matters to us. And so it's this balance between what I would see as the old calendar, the traditional calendar, the inherited calendar that we celebrate, and the new calendar that we've talked about, the LGBT days, the Black yeah. History Months, the new things that are being imposed. And to me, this is a key part of what happens in a cancel culture environment. You cancel the old culture and you bring in a new culture. A new, sorry, you cancel the old calendar and you bring in a new calendar. No one really understands the new calendar. Everyone really pines after the old calendar. And the phrase I came up with was I feel like the calendar uh, is it's the rhythm of the culture. The calendar is the rhythm of the culture. That's to say, uh, if you find a way of undermining a culture's calendar, you're getting to the heart of it and you're getting you're making people really discomforted about their celebrations and how open they can be about what they care about and what they are going to celebrate with the people around them. And so I thought that was a really rich vein to discuss. I don't know what you feel about that, Ben. Um, yes, I, I think calendars have always been political tools. Um, it's why we have a month of August. Um, and it's, I mean, you can go back to the French Revolution and the completely mad metric yeah. calendar they briefly introduced. Um, the Russian Revolution, they updated their calendar as well. Um, yeah. the, the vandals, when they seize Carthage, they start a new calendar with a new year zero. I mean, it's, it's always, it's always been part of establishing a political order. Um, and it, it leaves us with nice artifacts like December, the 10th month being the 12th month of the year. Um, and that there are layers of, of accretions of history and tradition in our calendar that, um, are part of the continuity between the past, the present and the future. Um, mm. and interrupting that. I think is um, is a is a way of bullying and browbeating people, um, and it's it's a way it's of like pronouns, isn't it? Yeah, it's like pronouns, and it, it kind of in itself it seems it seems sort of harmless that um, you know November becomes 
Trans Awareness Month or whatever. I mean, every month has one of these days in it uh, or, or weeks. Mm. Um, and it, it's about, it, it's almost like taking over a public square. It's, it's that kind of uh, show, it's showing your strength. Um, and yeah. it's, it's a kind of very, it's a sort of insidious form of intimidation almost because you, you get to the point where if you're, you know, you're sat at your desk and you're getting these emails every, every week saying, Oh, you know, such and such is, uh, you know, I don't know, by curious awareness Wednesday or whatever the hell it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's always one of them. So it, it's, it's a kind of capture of, of the public square. And I had two observations on this. I, the first was, um, you know that it is so important very, very quickly when you say you will not mark it. If you say, I'm not going yeah. to do Black History Month. No, I'm not going to do Pride. If you say that, all hell breaks loose, depending on the context, depending on the environment. But yeah. that's a sign. That's a sign that it's happening, and that, or, the, or it's a sign that it's happened. And I, I love that little test of something. Is when, when it's, This is why I think it's like pronouns. When people say, please do your pronouns or please do your, do, do, op, you know, abide by the woke calendar, if the response is, I don't want to do it, I'm not, not, not for me, and all hell breaks loose, you know, you know we have a problem. And the second yeah. thing I've always done is um, when people talk about our old calendar, our, our real calendar, like we're in Advent, and I've always done this, is I always say to people, you do know it's Advent, not Christmas. I, I'm quite an irritating person, I think, then, when people meet me in person. <laughs> it's only but the I second say time them, you've mentioned it in the last hour, Tom. So. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But And also, when it gets to Christmas, it gets the 6th of January, I'll say, well, actually, you know, in the Orthodox uh, tradition, this is Christmas. And so you kind of, you can actually start to talk about your calendar and how excited you are by your calendar and its quirks. And like you mentioned, December. And actually, that's really interesting. People are interested in that. People take that on board. And uh, I think that's a really other good way of going on the attack in a very gentle way by just expounding something about why our calendar, our inherited calendar, our real calendar, why it is the way it is. Because it's an exciting little moment in history, or it's an exciting little thing that happened. You know, Guy Fawkes, for example, that was huge. It was it was such an important moment when Parliament was nearly blown to smithereens and the king into bits. Uh, it's important for us to remember that and to understand why we do. Like Lewis does that fantastically down in East Sussex every year, um, and you can have a little conversation, not long, over a coffee. Yeah, and lots of these little traditions have been lost, and and. You know, I would say actually that's not something that has happened so much in the last. Well, it, let me correct myself. It's been accelerated in the last five years, um, but really, you can go all the way back to the Reformation or uh, reforms of the nineteenth century, and you you lose first of all the saints' days and those kinds of things, but you also lose things like O'Capel Day, um, and as you've just described, those sort of little. Um, moments of continuity with the past where you can teach children yeah. this is we celebrate this because charles ii hid in a, in a tree um and then the question is well why did he hide in a tree right and they and then it, it starts a conversation about the past and about where we're from and who our ancestors are and so on which which i obviously i think this is what i'm talking about it think is very desirable um and uh, it's much to be regretted that those things have have just been allowed to fall into abeyance or have been stripped away uh, or are now being um, by some actively repressed. Yeah. I have talked ceaselessly 
Ben, and I'm looking at the clock, and I can see that uh, although we have other items we need to cover, I feel we should jump straight to the FSU events <laughs> because we, yeah, we, well, we're you know already um, an episode's worth. Let's just say, yeah, we're, we're very much out of time. Um, but if you go to the event section on our website, you'll see that we are in Belfast on the 26th of January, uh, in Manchester on the 3rd of February. Um, and we, as always, have a huge, huge raft of events coming up all over the country. As I said, I was uh, down listening to, uh, to Doug Stokes and Alka Scalcuthbert down in Exeter. That was our first event in the Southwest uh, that was very well attended. People as far afield from uh, Bristol and Penzance all came to Exeter to hear that. There about 100 people there. Um, so they're really good events and uh, we're very very keen on not being London centric um, mm. so uh, do come along and the other thing we wanted to mention very quickly uh, was that our legal counsel uh, Caroline Silly has published two uh, FAQs on firstly freedom of expression on campus uh, and freedom of expression online um, and this is very much in the context of um, public order debates and so on that, that have been taking place over the last couple of months um so as she explains there's no simple answer to these sorts of questions but they are two i think very useful resources for uh, examining what the law says um, and what bits of law you can rely on um so have a look at those they're on our website uh, published uh, at the end of november and i think that's probably us done isn't it tom I think it is. There are more books we can talk about. Uh, as I say, any listeners, let us know, and we may come back to it. I think. Uh, I think it's a risk. Let's do that. Anyway, it's been it's been a fun episode, and uh, 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 yeah, I think we'll speak next week. All right. Bye bye for now. <laughs>